Welcome to the NATO Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sajin Gohel, and in this episode, I talk with Caroline Rose, the director of the Strategic Blind Spots Portfolio at the New Lines Institute. I discuss with Caroline her research on the captagon narcotics trade, as well as the intersection of defense, security, and geopolitics from Europe to North Africa and the Middle East to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Caroline Rose, thank you for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's our pleasure. Let's start with a broad brush. Talk to me about how serious currently the challenges are with the intersection of illicit economies, armed conflict, and insecurity. Absolutely. So I I think that this is a very unique challenge that is emerging in the 21st century with the uh, doubling down and, and the acceleration of globalization Along with blurred lines in active and latent conflict zones, illicit economies are beginning to embed themselves very deeply into governance networks, into local security landscapes. And they're doing an excellent job um, by undermining governance, um, exacerbating corruption, and using illicit economies as alternative revenue sources that allow them to accrue power, but then also over time degrade human security. A lot of these actors are armed actors and once they through political influence, they also um, broaden their access to arms and um, pursue violence against local communities or, or um, uh, forces of government. And because of that, uh, you know, this is really an emerging challenge. Uh, you have, of course, organized crime, but you also have armed groups that are becoming um, very intimately embedded and intertwined with illicit economies. So I want to delve deeper into this. And in particular, one aspect that you've been researching in great detail, even testified to uh, the UK Parliament about, and that is that there has been uh, a great concern uh, over the dangerous impact of the drug uh, captagon. Now, not everyone knows about this narcotic. Can you firstly explain what it is and then also talk about its proliferation? Absolutely. So Captagon was actually first introduced to the licit pharmaceutical market in the 1960s by a German pharmaceutical company named Degusa AG. And it was essentially produced for a variety of different um, needs. The first and foremost being ADHD, attention deficit disorders. Um, It would be occasionally or reportedly used for weight loss as well, um, but primarily used for attention deficit disorders. And uh, in the 1960s, when it was introduced on the pharmaceutical market, it had a very brief um, uh, tenure there until the mid-1980s when it was scheduled by the World Health Organization and then incrementally taken off the licit market. Uh, In the 1990s to the early 2000s, that's when we started to see Captagon trickle into the black market, where it was proliferated by organized criminal groups in the Balkans, and it slowly migrated and made its way into Turkey, and then eventually into the Levant in Syria and Lebanon, where a variety of non-state actors began to produce Captagon in very small amounts. The reason why we think that Captagon became popular in the early 2000s to, you know, mid 2010s in the Middle East 
was because it used to be a licit pharmaceutical substance that would require prescription and it was used for productivity. And because of that, the taboo of drug use um, was lessened. The taboo of using Captagon was deemed, um, you know, less societally uh, shameful. And because of that, Captagon became a very popular substance. It also became a useful substance for those facing food insecurity, uh, those working multiple shifts that needed uh, something to get them through the day. So you've brought out all the different dynamics of it, how it has spread, the regions that it's been impacted on. Let's look at one in particular, which is its uh, negative impact on the Syrian civil war. Who is benefiting the most from this illicit trade? Uh, without a doubt, actors that are closely aligned with the Syrian regime. So, uh, you know, in the two in the mid 2010s, you saw a dramatic shift from a small scale production to large scale industrial size production around 2018 to 2019, where we began to see. Captagon seized in the millions of pills, um, it, it incredible industrial scale capacity for both production and smuggling, where only a state actor that had access to Mediterranean ports like the port of Latakia, as well as commercial vessels and the industrial scale packaging that it you know, required it to be shipped in such large amounts. And because of that, even today, we still see the Syrian regime benefiting from the Captagon trade because they control the checkpoints for taxing Captagon tablets and shipments. They control the border hubs and, and cross-border uh, trafficking nodes. Um, this has also allowed them to have leverage in negotiations uh, for normalization discussions. And then, of course, you know, the elephant in the room is that Captagon has become a very lucrative illicit trade that has allowed the regime to reap what we estimate to be uh, billions of dollars per year, roughly two to three billion dollars annually. And that's just regime actors. Of course, there are non-state actors. There continue to be, you know, communities involved in the opposition and, um, you know, lone wolves and criminal networks that are actively involved in Captagon production that are not affiliated with the Cap or not affiliated with the Syrian regime. However, uh, the Syrian regime network is the most extensive and by far produces the great majority of Captagon stemming from Syria. I find it mind boggling the figures you were talking about, just billions that the that the regime has made uh, within the chaos of the civil war and the misery that so many millions have felt inside the country. So the Assad regime is somewhat being rehabilitated within the Arab world. How do we address the fact that the Captagon trade uh, is still growing in the midst of uh, the multiple uh, Arab nations that are taking steps towards normalizing the the, the relationship with uh, Syria. Well, certainly, I think that it's it's notable when you look at the statistics and you look at arrests and seizure data from countries. Um, Captagon is not growing to the extent that it did from between 2020 and 2021. Um, it's still steadily growing in the region, but not at such a rate that, um, you know, it, this constitutes a crisis for uh, anti-narcotics and law enforcement agencies. 
That being said, we are seeing um, an, an uptick in reports, uh, particularly amongst transit countries like Jordan, and more frequent reports of Captagon seizures, which shows that law enforcement agencies are getting smarter and about detecting Captagon shipments. They're also communicating a lot better between um, amongst themselves and, and amongst other law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies. That being said, um, you know, now there's a discussion about bringing Syria into the fold and involving them in that conversation and even allowing them to uh, contribute to ongoing investigations into networks inside of Syria, um, identifying who is involved in the Captagon trade uh, from both a production standpoint and a trafficking standpoint. Uh, by allowing and bringing Damascus in, into that conversation, giving them agency about uh, you know, who they can approve or deny um, that, you know, who is involved in that process, I think um, is extremely premature, just given that the regime does have extensive networks um, and connections to large scale Captagon production and trafficking networks. Uh, that being said, um, it does seem like the region is starting to slow down with um, particular normalization efforts especially after, you know, admitting them into the Arab League, it didn't necessarily yield the results they wished to see on counter-narcotics. There was this big belief that the flow of Captagon would dramatically um, be reduced after Syria was admitted, believing that the Syrian regime as a move and confidence-building measure that would somehow translate to a reduction in flow. And we have not seen that. In fact, this past summer, we've seen a dramatic rise in Captagon um, laboratory seizures, Captagon shipment seizures and arrests across the region. Um, so because of that, I think that many of Syria's, Syria's neighbors are recognizing that direct collaboration with the Syrian regime may not necessarily be uh, the most strategic and successful strategy um, or st strategic or successful move and decision that they can make um, when it comes to stemming the flow of Captagon. Talking about stemming the flow, could the Captagon trade potentially expand well beyond the, the Middle East? And I'm thinking of places like Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, which have had challenges of narcotics such as uh, opium, heroin, uh, methamphetamines, but also through the Balkans, which I, I, I recall you did mention that a little earlier. Absolutely. I think that in the Middle East, uh, it's reached its limit um, to where it's an extremely popular substance. There's now uh, a very large scale law enforcement campaign um, across re across uh, state and, and uh, intra-regional counter-narcotics campaign that is concentrated on Captagon. And because of that, we're starting to see trafficking networks get creative and identify new potential consumption markets outside of the region. Um, the reason why, and I think the reason why Captagon can be competitive on, you know, within new markets, it's because Captagon has so many uses. Captagon can be used for productivity, but also it can be used for food insecurity. It can be used 
um, uh, you know, to work a second or third shift. It can be used recreationally. And because of that, it is, you know, kind of this multi-use drug. Um, it's an amphetamine type stimulant. Um, it's addictive for sure. And it has, you know, many health concerns associated with it. But that being said, it's still not perceived as, you know, this hard drug, like, for example, heroin and cocaine would be. Um, and because of that, I think it could be extremely competitive in other markets outside of the Middle East. Uh, we've already started to see uh, trends that indicate that Captagon is moving um, into Iraq uh, very steadily as a both transit and destination market. We've already started to see labs seized in Iraq, which we've never seen before this past summer. Um, in terms of Iran, you know, where there is a high um, uh, methamphetamine use uh, and, and heroin use as well, I mean, Captagon certainly could be a competitive substance. But I think the biggest trend that we're starting to see is Captagon move in across the Mediterranean, through the Balkans and into Europe. We have already seen it this past July, a Captagon laboratory was seized in Regensburg in Bavaria, Germany. Um, we've also seen various Captagon smuggling networks busted um, across, across Europe, um, primarily in uh, Austria of all places. Um, as well as networks that have helped with trafficking um, operations in Italy as well. So it looks like they're trying to plant routes um, across Europe, as well as Africa. And that's the last potential transit and destination market. Um, we've seen Captagon be trafficked to transit ports and transit routes within Africa, particularly in Morocco, um, Nigeria, Sudan, um, and various other countries. And we also have heard reports of militants being attracted to Captagon just because it um, supposedly boosts their performance on the battlefield. So it is spreading quite substantially. And uh, as you gave the examples of Germany and Austria, it is already now in continental Europe. Um, so that is deeply concerning. Building on that, what are the the routes, the um, the methods? for the narcotics to move across countries? Um, is it with couriers? Is it through uh, human trafficking? Uh, how is it being shipped around? So from 2018 to 2021, I would say that the most popular way was through commercial maritime shipping. You would see overland smuggling um, and certainly, you know, overland smuggling doesn't didn't disappear during that time period. But uh, maritime smuggling through proven existing commercial um, shipping routes and shipping lanes, that was a very popular way to transport industrial size Captagon shipments. But after in 2021, there was a severe uptick in the attention and um, concern and study and examination of Captagon trafficking because it really did explode in the region. Um, the sizes of shipments were just astronomical. I mean, they were in the millions of pills. After that happened, um, you saw smugglers shift their tactics. They uh, then sought to um, exploit reopened um, smuggling routes, for example, the Jaber Nasib border crossing between Syria and Jordan, and also rely on overland smuggling. So you had smaller um, shipments. They were not in the you know millions of pills, but they were in the thousands. 
and it relied upon a broader network of local communities, local tribes that were recruited to essentially smuggle Captagon in backpacks or even in some cases in, you know, convoys, um, in trucks, in, you know, um, civilian cars and civilian vehicles across the border. And that's why we've seen a severe uptick in Captagon smuggling along the Syrian-Jordanian um, border. Some smuggling operations have been militarized as well. Uh, we've seen some smugglers um, kind of accept very risky behavior by firing on Jordanian armed forces and in you know participating in armed clashes with Jordanian armed forces. We've also seen an uptick in smuggling efforts along the Saudi um, Jordanian border as well, particularly a lot of attempts at the Al Haditha port. And then also we've started to see smuggling um, from Iraq into Kuwait, from Iraq into Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, they are really identifying new overland routes to transport Captagon in smaller sizes, but in more frequent bursts. Well, I'm very glad that you helped lay out the, the methods of how it moves around, because it's very important, especially for a practitioner to understand uh, themselves. And a lot of them um, we interact with um, as part of uh, the work for NATO's Train the Trainer program, including the Jordanian Armed Forces. So the example that you brought up with what they're having to encounter is really, really important there. You mentioned earlier that Captagon's not viewed as a hard drug. Is that ever going to change? What would it take for that to be elevated? And are there countries or at a multilateral level uh, desires to uh, make it a hard drug or viewed as a hard drug, I should say? I think that when it comes to Captagon, one of the trickiest elements, and for me as a researcher and analyst, one of the most concerning elements about Captagon is that we really don't know what's in it anymore. Um, so I mentioned in the 1960s, you know, this was a licit pharmaceutical product and there was a formula. It followed the phenethylene formula. And because of that, um, you know, there was a definition of what Captagon was. But now um, Captagon, its chemical evolution has changed so much that when you have the, you know, there are very few laboratory analyses that show the chemical composition, but the few that do show that Captagon does not whatsoever resemble the phenethylene formula of the 1960s to 1980s. Instead, it actually um, is nothing like it. Uh, sometimes it has little to no amphetamine at all, or sometimes up to 47% of amphetamine metabolized um, inside the pill, along with a variety of cutting agents that range between, you know, quinine, caffeine, and a number of other substances that can be either harmful or not harmful to the user. Um, and really, it shows that these smuggling networks and these producers uh, they're kind of making Captagon whatever whatever they want it to be. There is no uh, formula, there's no set guideline or procedure that these producers are following when it comes to the manufacturing process of Captagon. Because of that, um, you know, coming back to your question of will this be considered with more stigma or perceived with more stigma um, as it expands to new markets? I think it's entirely possible, but what would require that is more frequent and sustained testing. 
Uh, so law enforcements in the Middle East that do seize Captagon pills, being able to send it to laboratories for consistent testing, identify that chemical composition of that batch of Captagon and make it publicly available and compare it with other seized shipments that are also chemically analyzed. Um, that would be a huge, huge, um, it would make a big difference for researchers, but then also, of course, the public perception of what Captagon really is. Um, as of now, it's an amphetamine type stimulant, an ATS, um, which I would also say overall is not perceived um, with, you know, much stigma as, for example, other harder substances, heroin, cocaine, etc. So that's very interesting. And I wanted to segue a little because the other big development um, that is happening in the region in the Middle East has been the rapprochement between um, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Was this down to great power competition, thanks to, say, countries like China's involvement, or as others have suggested, that there are more immediate practical concerns, such as, for example, the trafficking of Captagon? I think that the... Iranian-Saudi Arabian rapprochement process had a lot to do with the rapprochement process between Syria and its Arab neighbors. I, I really do believe that that normalization process sparked another and that um, when it came to Iranian expectations and demands, that was a hidden concession that was not on paper, but it was an expectation that uh, regional players would test this out. Um, and that's why we also saw the urgency and the immediacy. Um, you know, the, the uh, Iranian-Saudi Arabian rapprochement process that was in March and in April and May, we saw a huge rush um, to roll out the red or white carpet for President Bashar al-Assad. We saw the string of regional visits and really, I think that that had a lot to do with the timing. Um, that being said, of course, the earthquake as well really did um, change the tide for normalization with the Syrian regime. A lot of countries were already toying with the idea of normalization. Um, some have tried and failed. For example, I think that Jordan could be counted as one of them. They tried to open the Jaber Nassib border crossing um, about a year before that, and you know, after they did that, there was a huge uptick in violent smuggling operations, and they pumped the brake on normalization. Um, a number of other countries like Saudi Arabia that had been much more cautious for normalization also rushed to that process following the earthquake and following the March um, uh, uh, Chinese broker deal. And because of that, I think that that normalization can be seen as intimately intertwined with normalization um, with Syria and ongoing rapprochement talks. A lot of geopolitical moves right there. And sticking with the potential of building ties, there, the chances of Israel and Saudi Arabia uh, having closer official engagement at a diplomatic level seems to have moved a step closer. We'll have to watch this space. But how does that impact on the region? How does it also uh, impact on a lot of the aspects that we've been talking about, such as counter-narcotics cooperation? Where do you see the, the, the key strategic dynamics between Israel and Saudi Arabia emerging? 
Certainly. So I think that this creates a new balancing act for Riyadh that we had not seen before. We've always heard Riyadh trying to diversify their foreign policy agenda and diversify their diplomatic relations. This does that. Um, however, being able to juggle two parallel rapprochement processes with two of probably the most bitter regional rivals, Israel and Iran, that's going to be a very delicate process for Riyadh to, 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 to balance. Um, and because of that, I think that we will see counter-narcotics, that agenda and that issue elevated to the top of both normalization processes. I think that's also why we saw counter-narcotics so prominently featured with normalization with Syria as well. And the reason for that is because it is less politically sensitive um, to many countries. It's a newer subject. Not many people are even aware of what Captagon is. Um, and even for law enforcement systems, there are processes and procedures in place. Captagon, counter-narcotics in general, seems like an easy win um, and something that they can elevate to the top of the negotiation agenda um, because it's easy to build momentum on. Um, with Syria, it's a bit more politically uh, difficult and challenging. And because of that, I think there, there's been a turn away from that recently. Um, but when it comes to Saudi Arabia and Israel, um, as well as Saudi Arabia and Iran, I think it's very likely that we'll see this issue featured prominently in discussions. And when it comes to Israel especially, this is now a mutually, um, it's a shared concern between Riyadh and, and Israel and their Israeli counterparts as well. Israel hasn't been a hub of Captagon consumption, but they have seized Captagon along their border. Um, the IDF has now announced some regular seizures of, of what seems to be Captagon and other amphetamine type stimulants. And as a lot of these Iran-aligned networks that are involved in Captagon um, smuggling, also production um, inside of southern Syria, as they accumulate and as they proliferate their presence along their border with Syria, or sorry, their border with Israel, um, this could be something that Israel would, would seek dialogue and communication with Riyadh with regarding interdiction capacity, best practices, and just communication about and intelligence about the networks that are operating. A lot of uh, important dynamics right there. A theme that's been constant in our discussion has been this aspect of food insecurity. Uh, and very often, that is always there when it comes to uh, narcotics. We've seen it in, for example, Afghanistan, where the growing of poppies has been seen as the alternative to growing normal crops because it's easier, it's less expensive, it's weatherproof. Slightly different, I guess, when it comes to the aspect of uh, Captagon. But are there strategies, are there goals, potential options to alleviate the food insecurity in the Middle East, which Captagon has benefited so much from? Absolutely. And I think it's very important that when we talk about, you know, the timing of Captagon on the rise, when it when it really did explode in the Levant it was exploiting food insecurity. It was exploiting economic insecurity um, in a country that had been ravaged by civil war for years. And the actors that were actively involved in Captagon production, especially those on an industrial scale, 
um, you know, this wasn't necessarily about community level um, development and using Capticon as an alternative revenue locally, but rather on a national scale, um, given the level of high level regime aligned officials, businessmen, um, and and other uh, magnets that have been involved in Capticon production and trafficking. Because of that, I think that when we look to, you know, solutions for food insecurity inside of Syria, you know, this has been a, a long going, a, an ongoing discussion for a very long time throughout the Civil War. Um, you know, that starts and ends with a political settlement, which unfortunately at this point in the Civil War and even in the rapprochement process, does not look likely, um, given the litany of non-starters for the Syrian regime, also their role in, you know, uh, the diversion process with, with humanitarian aid um, and widespread corruption. So, you know, when we look to Captagon and its role in ongoing food insecurity, um, it's very likely that the alternative revenue that's being generated by this trade, it's really not trickling into local communities. Um, it is not bolstering local, you know, economic and employment opportunities or anything like that. While local community members, we believe, have been employed at some Captagon processing um, facilities and Capticon manufacturing facilities, it does not look like this is being um, used, for example, like crops have as uh, means for local survival. It seems very concentrated in the hands of a few inside of Syrian regime held territories. Well, you've helped provide so much detail and perspective on all the different dynamics to do with uh, Captagon. And a final question, and I have to ask this one, especially as I teach at the LSE, like myself and our two producers of the uh, NATO podcast, Marcus and Victoria, you too are an alumni of the LSE's International History Department. So how much did your master's degree there help you in your career path and what you are researching now? I think that studying at the LSE and, in, and studying in their International History Department gave me an incredibly strong foundation um, and uh, a, a base of knowledge that allowed me to understand how states interact with each other, um, history of, of, uh, of, of conflict, but then also history of diplomatic breakthroughs as well. Um, and then also it exposed me to coursework and it exposed me to classmates and faculty members that I'm still in touch with today that have been an incredible um, uh, resource and also played a, an incredible role in my own professional development. And um, really, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy that I had that degree and had that time at, at LSE. Well, I know everyone in the department is very proud of you and what you're doing and uh, wish you to continue your, your efforts because it's, it's so important, the research that you're doing. And it, you're another very timely reminder of why historians do make the best practitioners. So, uh, Caroline, let me thank you again for joining us on NATO Deep Dive and hope to have you back in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of NATO Deep Dive brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. My producers are Marcus Andriopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int 
forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the NATO deep dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or deep.